This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And we had one of the longest, most engaging threads on the Babel Conference a couple weeks ago discussing our favorite starships. Uh, as the thread grew, people kept adding great summaries as to which and why each ship was special to them. And we thought it would be amiss if we didn't dedicate some shows to this topic, Ken. Yeah, you're right, Zach. The, the thread was so much fun, and we got a lot of feedback. I I couldn't be happier with the results that we got on the back and forth on that thread. And if by chance you didn't get to read through it and participate in that, that thread is still open. And we love reading your posts and adding to that specific discussion. Yeah, so today we're going to start part one of a two-part series on the ships of Star Trek within our own era that we cover on Standard Orbit. Today it's the ships from the series uh, and the TOS movies, and the next week we'll be covering the Kelvin Timeline ships. <laughs> so I have to admit, Zach, that this is the geekiest part of Star Trek for me, and I am the ultimate geek when it comes to the ships. Uh, maybe it's my affiliation with the Navy. I don't know, but I love ships. So let's start off with the flagship of all Star Trek ships, the original, the NCC-1701, no refit, no A, USS Enterprise. No bloody A, B, C, or D, or E, as it turns out. The most iconic ship in Star Trek, really. I mean, you see T-shirts you know, that they make to this day. They say nerd or geek on them. You have the outline of the original series Enterprise. And just what an iconic design by Matt Jeffries that informed the look of Star Trek and Starfleet for 50 years, right? It was. It was extraordinarily innovative in its day. It was huge. I think they said the, the model itself was 11 feet. They they built one for the um, for, for the cage, and then again for where no man has gone before. They, the, the ship was then modified after that a bit where they made some subtle changes uh, along the nacelles and so forth. But after that, the ship didn't change at all for the rest of the the remaining three years of the series. Although I guess they kept cutting back to shots that went back and forth. But (laughs) neither here nor there. That that shape uh, became the, the, I guess, the the lens in which all of the starships in Starfleet on the Star Trek side then always had kind of a similar attribute. The engines or the nacelles were detached, the, um, the, a lot of times there is a saucer section. The saucer could be its own hull or part of one hull. But anyway, it gave a very distinct look to Starfleet. And you're right, for its day, it really was cool looking. It, it still is. It's a, it's a great looking ship. And, and you know, it's funny, when you think of aesthetics like, uh, 
like back in the days in the 40s and 50s where you had those Buck Rogers type ships and they all had the rockets and the fins and the big long needle in the front and you know it's uh it's funny but when you think about it NASA rockets today don't look all that different they're they're skinnier thinner all that other stuff and if you look at how a ship might be designed for travel to Mars or something along those lines well the size and scope of something like the Enterprise I think would be way out of the realm I think there's a lot of attributes that could actually apply. Yeah, I mean, the the big directive from Gene Roddenberry to Matt Jeffries when the ship was being designed was don't make it look like that stuff. You know, there's there's a, a certain idea of what a rocket ship, quote-unquote, looks like in sci-fi, and I want to get away from that. This is not what we're going for. And then also the other extreme would be the UFO. I don't want any of that either. You know, it is what he didn't want. So so the, there was an interesting compromise here where, like, the if you, you know, if you detach the saucer section... As mm-hmm. you know, could be done. By the way, as we finally saw in Star Trek Beyond from the uh, original Enterprise, it's a flying saucer, right? That's what it is. That's so, right. so it's like you take the flying saucer and then you build off of that the rest of the ship. And you know, uh, it's interesting, you know, because because take yourselves back, guys, to the to the sixties and the and the fifties. Uh, Forbidden Planet was like probably the most one of the most mainstream iconic science fiction films of that time, and. Uh, the good guys quote spaceship was a flying saucer people usually uh associate the flying saucer with you know alien invasion and all that stuff and yes and that's what it became in popular culture but uh i think star trek kind of borrowed a lot from forbidden planet at least is you know the structure and of the of the crew and that kind of thing and you can see that you know it's the flying saucer type designs are not just for you know little green men and bug-eyed monsters that they can be humans can use that ship too so you take the flying saucer and you add on this you know, star drive section or, or battle section as we as we went on to call it a next generation. And it's just an interesting combination of things. Now, the uh, the the deflector dish is something that changed. Which which deflector dish do you like? Since we're getting all nitty gritty here about the deflector dish, like in uh, where no man has gone before, and and in the opening credits and in stock footage, just like that big fat deflector dish. And then in the series itself, it's like mm-hmm. a little smaller, has some, some more circles around it. Do you have a preference for the original series deflector dish? Since we're getting all nitty gritty here, nuts and bolts. <laughs> if, if we're gonna get into it, I, I like the original series one. I, I mean the the one after um, where no one where no man has gone before. Excuse me, don't want to get those episodes screwed up. <laughs> the <laughs> no, I, I think they they scaled it right. I think it was a a, a bit bulky mm-hmm. uh, for the first one, and 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 it and it seemed to be more effective. Uh, it, it just. You know, you could tell they were tweaking a couple of things, right? They tweaked the dome on the top of the ship, uh, top of the bridge, and they tweaked the um, the deflector dish just enough, I think, to give it that right scale and balance. And that's the one thing I really like about the Enterprise. It's very balanced, right? It's it's got a it's got a great way about it. It's it, it feels very symmetrical. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, we'll get into the Kelvin timeline ships next time. But uh, you know, if you look at uh, Ken is now holding up his ncc 1701 model <laughs> admiring yeah, i'm looking at the deflector dish again yeah, and say, okay which deflector yeah. dish do you have there you have the series one i assume right I, um, I do yeah yeah but if you look at the kelvin timeline one just to compare contrast right uh i feel like it's not very proportioned you know i feel like it's a little uh smushed uh i feel like the saucer section is not far enough away from the star drive section and the, the nacelles could be better you know so i just look when, if, it, if it ain't broke don't fix it right and i feel like you had this perfect design and of course you have to update it and tweak it uh but when you update and tweak things they don't always get worse sometimes they get better 
and we'll get to that later on in our discussion here today. So uh, you're right about bottom line, the proportions were, were perfect on the TOS Enterprise, and there's no need to yeah, change it. Right. And, I, and I agree that the smaller deflector dish is definitely the way to go. That it just it looked kind of just kind of jutted out, kind of stuck out like a sore thumb almost on the on the end of the star drive section there. So I'm glad they redid the dish. Now let's talk nacelles. Okay, I know we mm-hmm. talked we talked a little bit about this in our last episode with uh, Brandon on where we No did. Man has gone before. I think we're both fans of the original series proper nacelles, not the uh, pilot nacelles like the the pointy edge and all that. Yeah, that that had the Buck Rogers feel to it yeah. a little bit. They <laughs> it looked like the nacelles looked like those rockets that they were trying to get away from, and I think that they cleaned that up nicely mm-hmm. a, a lot. It it looks a lot better. Although I have to say, before I realized that the way I was viewing the ship from our last episode uh, on the stern of the nacelles that. <laughs> that they were two different models, that there wasn't something that was changing in between warp drive and impulse power. <laughs> so that was, to me, like a big, well, that was a big aha moment. Well, I don't I know love, how I could be a Star Trek fan all those years and never pick up on it, but I didn't. I, I love your, I love, and I know you said it wasn't a fanboy justification, and that wasn't what it was. That was just you just logically saying, oh, well, this looks this way sometimes, this way the other. But I love what you came up with, Ken, in our last episode. You're like, well... When they're at uh, warp speed, you open up those vents and you see them flying along at warp speed. And when they're just on impulse power thrusters, the the vents close up and we have those orbs which cover up the you know the exhaust port. And I thought that's a great uh, that's a great justification. Now I'm sure uh, Jeff or somebody could tell us, well, you know, at episode 17, you know, where they get warp, there, <laughs> you know, so you know that's probably not going to hold. But to me, th- that justifies it for me. Now that's something they actually went ahead and fixed and the remastered as we and we talked a lot and, then, and you know that's another thing not only our discussion on the babel conference but our discussion uh last time with brandon really informed like man we could we could really go into nitty-gritty detail about these ships if we want and that that kind of st- this discussion stemmed from all those things really so when we talked about that last time last week did we i i, I have to be honest i haven't watched a remastered uh tos episode since because we've been we've been studying these things and uh, i guess i could have but did they keep the um, the caps at the end of the of the nacelles? I'm sorry, of the engines in in the remastered version, or do they open up the uh, that ball in the back, so to speak? No. So they what they do is in War No Man has gone before, and they have the the pilot version, you know, with the vents in the back and the and the yeah. uh, points on the end of the nacelles, and then for the series proper, they have uh, the nacelle caps that are smooth, and then the balls at the end, at the back end of the Nacelle, so they just they made it consistent throughout uh, the series, which is which is great, which is you know a, a huge plus for the remaster to kind of fix a lot of those continuity errors, and then you know and also um, something they carried over from the original series. Now this is very clever, a very clever use of stock footage from the original series in Mirror Mirror, where they have the ISS Enterprise. Uh, mm-hmm. They use the stock footage from the where No Man Has Gone Before ship to to look like oh it's the ship but it's a little different you know I just thought you know for limited resources in the sixties that's a very clever way because obviously they're not gonna have like they're not gonna make alterations to the model they have their shots and this is what they're gonna use right oh but they use the miniature model from the original yeah yeah so they pilot. actually they actually yeah, use yeah, that yeah. and and then the it's it's uh, orbiting planets right to left instead of left to right so it just it's a, it's a cool little universe thing. And they copied that over for the remastered. So if you go back to, if you look at Mirror Mirror Remastered, they use the same CGI model for the Enterprise that they used for Where No Man Has Gone Before. So just a nice bit of continuity there, uh, taking production. And this is, you know, we've been talking about this. We talked about this in our Star Trek Origins episode. We were talking about this on the Babel Conference uh, on and off recently too. Like I love it when like these these real life situations inform 
the Star Trek itself, like the like the narrative itself. Like, yeah, they were on a budget in the '60s, so like, oh, let's use the stock footage of a slightly different looking ship, and it adds to the you know the richness of the universe. And then they copy that over 40 years later in 2006 when they do the remastered Star Trek. They say, you know what, we're gonna keep that. That's a cool idea. We're just gonna do mm-hmm. it with CGI. So anyway, just it's so cool. I think those little things. Yeah, it is. It's it's huge, and and I think we've said a couple of times, and I. I, I think about this all the time because when, when I was a kid growing up and, you know, before cable, before VHS and all that other stuff, yeah, I'm that old Zach, don't give me that look, <laughs> the, um, you, you know, you'd go to the movies and you would say, oh, you know, it's only going to be two years before it's going to be on TV. <laughs> and then it would be on TV and it would be on maybe the next year and then maybe every two or three years after that, right? It wasn't something that was on constantly. And and that's the way things run. And now, you know, you look at us today and we're like, oh, I can't wait for that DVD to come. Like Beyond is coming out in a month and a half or something crazy. <laughs> it's like no time at all. And and you're sitting there going, oh, that, you know, I can't wait that long. But it, it, it was a different era back then, uh, even though the, sh- the show went into uh, uh, syndication and reruns very quickly after after it's watching it gain that popularity. Well, that that was definitely an outlier. That's not what normally happened. These shows come on. And then they fade away into nothingness, and and nobody really pays attention to the kind of detail that we're talking about. That that they made those switches between the gate, the cage, and after where no man has gone before, and then they they buffed it up, they changed some things around, and they they went forward, and you know, and they still use stock footage from there, which is why I had in my head why things happened with the engines, <laughs> you know, and I never I never would have known the difference, and it and it's just funny, but now. You know, we can look at this stuff anytime, compare and contrast. Uh, in fact, people are out there, you know, they're actively looking for the bloopers and the mistakes. It is it is just a different, different world from when they, they made this TV show to the way things are viewed today. Yeah, it's like, well, let me watch it on the phone while I sit here on the bus. <laughs> It's just what a what a crazy way it's to crazy. Media, yeah, right? what a, it's it's a it's a <laughs> that's an excellent point, you know. And and I see my kids doing that stuff all the time. I'd like to do that when I drive, but I don't have an autonomous car yet. <laughs> well, so. That's never stopped me. But no, no, don't don't do that, kids. Uh, anyway, uh, if you drive, so if you're driving in the Houston area, uh, be careful. I I, I tend to uh, you know drift from time to time. Uh, anyway, so uh, so talk a little bit more about uh, the NCC 1701 here. Uh, a feature that we never got to see on the show, but uh, the Kirk mentions in the Apple, uh, is uh, uh, launch, you know, detach the engines and get the saucer section out of here. And, you know, that would have been cool. And that was always planned to see the uh, – it, it was part of the plan of the Enterprise that the saucer section could separate. Now, in the original series – uh, it wasn't like the next generation where like, oh, we go apart, we go back together. Like that was like an emergency kind of thing. Like that was like last resort, you know, all hands, abandoned ship. We got to ditch this star drive section. And that, that was my understanding of how it was uh, for the original series Enterprise. Uh, so I, I don't think it would have been cool to see, but it, it would have been a one-off thing. We never would have got the ship reattached, in my opinion. And and, and we saw that to its fruition in uh, the Kelvin timeline. So I mean, I guess to that point, Ken, would you have liked to see them try and do that or separate the ship? I mean, all special effects in the 60s uh, limitations aside, uh, what, what are your mm. thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I always knew that it, it could separate, and I think I had it in my head as like you did. That, and, and because you have the TNG influence now, you think, oh, that would have been cool if they, they broke it up and it became a more formidable weapon as they did with TNG. But mm-hmm. I always looked at it as being an emergency. So I, I, I think that would have been cool, especially if it could have come back together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because I think that was one of the key reasons, right, that they— they did what they did in the very first episode of The Next Generation. It was something they always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And they had this opportunity, so they did it. And uh, and I just, I remember at the time going, oh, this is this is pretty cool. But then it just didn't look right at all. I mean, it just, it, it just kind of, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those things, be careful, be careful what you wish for. Well, you don't like um, the way the, the star drive section looks on the D? N- no, no, I, I mean, no, I, no. You know, there's, there's a lot of people out there, and, and I appreciate those, you know, uh, Amy Nelson and others. The D is their favorite ship. Uh, we had a, uh, a great comment this morning, even, when we were talking about starships. And Martina Buffa came up with a very, very different look at, at starships this morning. She, she said, if you look at it from the inside out, you know, how, how, um, how they're set up so everybody can move around and we're... Uh, you know, you can you can um, you you can get from one place to another quickly. Do you have enough privacy? You know, how comfortable are people's quarters? She looked at it completely different from any aspect that I ever ever looked at it. Right, and so I always think of the design aesthetic externally, and and so she she switched my view on that. So no, I didn't like the way the the Enterprise looked when it's separated, but I loved what it could do when it was separated, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing. You're not thinking about aesthetics when you're thinking about making sure you have a ship that can kick ass and take names when they're attacked. Yeah. Well, I'd say the D definitely, and I like the battle section of the Enterprise D. I mean, I I grew up as a child of the next generation, quite literally. So I, uh, I, I like the D. I mean, I like the original Enterprise better, just for the record here, uh, being on standard orbit. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) When you when you take apart the Enterprise D, the Star Drive section kind of has a head to it, you know, kind of like that Cobra looking head, and that works for me. But if you sure. took apart the original Enterprise, it would it would just kind of be like like a like a pylon, you know, right in the center. There wasn't much of a of a head for that. And once again, that goes into what we're talking about. It was a, it's an emergency last minute thing, not to be attached and reattached. So it didn't it was never designed to be independent of the saucer section. Right, right. So you, you, it was it was a complete ship mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. yeah it broke into pieces from a from a rescue point of view and and all that kind of stuff that that's and that's that's a great call out there but uh, yeah hey i thought uh, you know you 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 hit it off um exactly right when we were talking about the the launch of the the tv series i think had a lot of success not just due to the chemistry of the people but the design of that ship i think i think it pulled a lot of people in i thought it was really neat to put some scale to this thing, you know, it's uh, it's roughly, if I remember, like between 900 and 1,000 feet long. It's got 430-some-odd people, 432, if I remember right, depending on how many red shirts get axed in, in one particular episode. Well, they had a lot of people between uh, the cage and 10 years later for uh, the original series because I, I believe Pike says, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of being responsible for, like, 203 lives, I, I believe is the line, so... I don't know if they like had some just extra space or they did some renovations because the ship is the same, right? The shell of the ship is the same, so maybe they converted some 
cargo bays or something into more crew quarters. But to almost double your complement is, you know, talking about, as we were just discussing, the in, thinking about inwardly, the inside of the ship and not just the outside. That's an interesting thing to think about, like, okay, where, where, where did all this space come from? Of course, look, these are just random lines of dialogue from a 60s TV show, and they were not meant to be just dissected the way we're doing it now, but that's what this show is all about, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, as uh, as you said, and, and our buddy uh, Edward Sanford said on the on the on the uh, on the Babel conference, the NCC one seven zero one, no bloody A, B, C, or D. Mm. So that's that's a that's a great way to start off the conversation, and the right place to start off this conversation. Yeah, you can't you cannot talk Star Trek ships without talking about the one that started it all, because as we said, this influenced everything. Every other ship ever designed in the fifty year history of Star Trek uses this as its base foundation reference. Yeah, and, and you know, I'll I'll add one other thing, and not necessarily to this, but I think it's very applicable. When uh, if if you were a kid and or as an adult or whatnot or it doesn't matter whether or not you were in the navy, a lot of people like to look at ships, study ships. They look at you know today's cruise liners and you compare it to like a a Titanic or an Olympic or a ship like that, or you take a a modern destroyer. And I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of the uh, the USS Zumwalt. I mean, it looks like it could be an outer space ship, right? It's got it's the funkiest design. It's huge. And, and you look at destroyers from this era and old era and so forth, and it is funny. You can always look back, or even, it doesn't even, like the USS Constitution. You look at those ships, and they have a quality and a beauty and lines about them that make them, make them special in their own right. And that's where, I think, because we're 50 years now since the Matt Jeffries design, we look at that ship and we say, one, you know, it was very practical in its design. Um, it, it, was, it was simple. Um, yet there were some complexities. I thought that were very clever in the way they added it, and it's just got—it's got a sweet look to it. It just does. I mean, it's got a nice silhouette. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a beautiful ship. And you know, one final point about real life influencing—you know—decisions made creatively on the show. Roddenberry originally thought the ship would land every week, right? And that would—that would be part of the show. The ship lands, and blah blah. They invented the transporter to save money, right? So if in right. fact they had not done that. I don't. We would have gotten a very different looking enterprise because this design doesn't land. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like this, this particular configuration <laughs> of ship cannot go down on a planet surface and land. I mean, they pulled it off with Voyager because it was a very compact ship and it could land. And the pylons came out and that was cool. And you know, much like the saucer separation on Next Generation, a cool thing you see a handful of times, less than that really. Voyager, I believe, lands like I don't know three times uh, across across the whole series. So. Uh, even then it's expensive, right? Even when the ship can do it. So uh, all that being said, had they not invented the transporter, had budget, you know, not been an issue, had they, had they, they could have done the forbidden planet thing, right? Where the, the spaceship lands on the planet, the ramp comes down, everybody gets out, everybody gets back on. But because to save budget on a day, on a weekly TV show, we, we got a radically different design than we might have otherwise seen. So who knows what the Enterprise would have looked like if, if they had, would have had the budget to land every week. I don't know, Zach. The Enterprise could land. But only once. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so the other most iconic ship from the original series has to be the D7 battlecruiser, the Klingon ship. Uh, people might not realize that this ship was not introduced to the third season of the original series. Retroactively, you know, artwork, fan art, whatever, even, you know, the remastered ha- has has put it in earlier seasons. Uh, Deep Space Nine's Trial and Tribulations has put it in, you know, the second season with... Uh, trouble with tribbles so this ship is is iconic and almost probably as much as the enterprise because every klingon design 
is references back to this ship even even if you look at you know the bird of prey even on down the road you have like the long extended neck with like the the bubble at the end of it yeah you know, the the arms on the side almost looking like a bird so that uh that design is equally influential as far as inside the star trek universe it's not as universally ex- uh, recognized i think if you if you go out on the street right and you show people you know a, a silhouette of the enterprise everybody knows oh yeah that's star trek but if you show people the klingon d7 eh, maybe you know probably about 20% of people would know it's from Star Trek, but inside Star Trek circles, it's instantly recognizable and iconic. Mm, it's a beautiful ship, too. I think I think what they did here was was a, a great a great overall design. You know, the, the, the I guess, the swept-backed wings. I don't know how else to put it. Mm. You know, with, with the engines coming off either side. Uh, it had, it, it was a great, I think, uh, opposite ship for the Enterprise. It looked powerful. Uh, the engines went down instead of up. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, okay, we're gonna make a ship. The, the we have a big circle. They have they have more like a ball. Uh, it, it's it's just it's to me they they really came up with a great nemesis type of of warship, and that's what it is. That was a warship, a battle cruiser, uh-huh. as they say. Uh, to to um to it, it was intimidating. And you know what? When we talk about lines and so like so forth, the thing I like about it is in in a lot of a lot of people that I know that weren't necessarily big Star Trek fans would kind of point out the fact that, you know, in space, you don't need to be symmetrical and you don't need to be aerodynamic. But all our ships were symmetrical and aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. And, and to that end, uh, it added balance and it added grace and it added style. And, and I would say that the Klingon battlecruiser had all of those elements. It's just, it was just a sleek looking ship. And, and we'll talk a little bit more as, as we get into the movie area and how they got upgraded. And, and really, you know, got to show off just how how cool those designs were. But yeah, I was I was a big fran- fan of the uh, the battle cruiser. I like the fact that, you know, when it when it shot its weapons, and sometimes I get um, my memory goes, and I don't know if it was from, from the remastered version or from the original version, but I know its disruptors or its its phaser banks itself, you know, would fire from the quote unquote the wings from above the engines, uh-huh. and uh, and and that too, if you think about it. A very very common way for for planes anyway to to shoot i mean a lot of the, the weapons obviously come right off from the wings and uh everything about the uh the klingon battlecruiser to me said sleek and menacing that's that's a great point ken about the uh reflecting you know air, modern aircraft or at the time modern aircraft you know coming from the sides and i don't think in the original series because once again it's not in the original series very much but the d7 it doesn't actually shoot torpedoes from the bridge no, module um so that that probably you know if you really look at you know the i'm sure a technical manual will have these specifics right but if you look at the design of the battlecruiser that uh circle at the end of the uh bridge module or command module is more like the deflector dish of the enterprise you know uh probably serves the same purpose uh as opposed to being a, a torpedo tube or a phaser bank or something like that so uh, that changed for the movies, but we'll get into we'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, absolutely. But yeah, I, I, you know, how can you how can you not love the uh, the the Klingon warships? I mean, they they again another um, what I thought was a groundbreaking um, breakout design 
that that went against the grain for for science fiction. And it was a big and, deal for the show to have a new ship model, especially in the third season, right? I mean, we've been talking about all the stock footage they used on Star Trek, you know, over, over the course of the series. But you know, they decided, look, the Klingons are our bad guy here. We need a ship. We none of this blob in the background or anything like that. We need a legitimate ship here for the Klingons. And and you know, all credit to Matt Jeffries for coming up with a because he, I mean, he invented both these ships, and and they're both radically different and and excellent in their own way. So you keep saying it showed up. I thought it showed up in the second season. No, see, because see, that, that's uh, that is Star Trek revisionist history fooling you, my friend. Because in, oh, that's uh, that's that's fine. That's fine. And in, uh, in so, the original, uh, I'm ready. Uh, you never see the D seven in tri- uh, Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, you never see it in uh, Friday's Child. You see a, a Klingon scout ship in Friday's mm-hmm. Child, but it's like this really weird, like amorphous blob. <laughs> So, right, right, uh, right, and that's yeah. that's all you see it in, and uh, and the Aaron of Mercy in the in the remastered version, I believe they added some, but yeah, it, this ship was not built until the third season. Its first, you know, it, production order uh, episode was a Land of Troyes. Now we we saw it before that as a Romulan ship, which is interesting. But so they we, said, but they said specifically they were using Romulans Klingon design. now using Klingon design, Captain. Yes, so uh, you know, I guess we could go ahead and talk about that real quick since it is the same ship. In this category, uh, the first chronological, like you know, uh, chronologically in you know, the real world, <laughs> the first time we saw this ship was in the Enterprise incident, and uh, they were all uh, Romulan ships, which, which is of course, is so ironic because you know, no one that that ship appears, and Scotty's like, "That's a Klingon ship." It's like, well, is it? <laughs> because that had not been established for either race yet, so that was that's interesting. Uh, once again, pro- real life production, uh, and you know, we can get into the why. They, the Romulans use Klingon ships in a second here, but I, I do I do really like uh, this design. I was happy to see it again, even, uh, even as a Romulan ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a, it's a cool ship, and now you've got my head spinning. You have no idea because <laughs> it, it isn't that funny. So you know, you watch these series over and over, and you know, I had thought I had read that the original Romulan ship got tossed um they it got destroyed got thrown away right the Klingon, uh, the, the Klingon, see, look at me right the romulan bird of prey is what yeah, yeah. We, we the all, romulan bird of yeah. prey the original romulan bird of prey got thrown out so they had to use the the klingon battlecruiser exactly um, yeah that's what I, what i what i i guess the piece that i missed was they developed the klingon battlecruiser for a separate episode that was going to be um after the enterprise incident correct, correct. it had to be okay i got you all right, now now I'm I'm back in. So let's let's go back a little bit to um, <laughs> to the Romulans using the Klingon design that we never saw until it was really a Romulan design. It's um, you know obviously uh, that 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 spins things a little bit. But uh, I did like the remastered version where they had two Klingon battle cruises and the old Romulan that they were able to they were able to pull back up. But I, you know they, to me it looked exactly the same. And then I think they added. Uh, uh, a warbird design. Yeah, that was a really cool addition by the remastered team to add uh, the Romulan bird of prey painting uh, underneath the uh, the Klingon ships. Obviously, they weren't going to do that in the '60s because the whole point was to save money. Uh, right. But right. you know, they had the CGI to do it in 2006, so that that kind of differentiated these ships uh, from the uh, the Klingon battle cruisers. So that, that was that was a cool cool thing. And yes, as as we mentioned earlier, the uh, the Romulan bird of prey, which from Balance of Terror was mm-hmm. uh in that episode and then it appeared in stock footage in the deadly years and then we didn't see it anymore because I, there's there's conflicting reports on this it's either like it was damaged or it was lost or uh, 
basically they couldn't they couldn't reuse the ship for for whatever reason they did not have access to it uh the Rhineland ship so when it came to enterprise incident they're like oh what do we do well we got this brand new klingon model let's get our let's get our money's worth out of it and they plugged into that episode and then and then henceforth became the, the romulan klingon alliance which was such a a thing once again these little behind the scenes things and you know we'll get we'll get it we'll get into this discussion in a lot more depth when we when we go back to our star trek origin series and talk about you know klingon romulan alliance the whole idea of that that goes all the way to the next generation with the duras family and the romulans and the kittimer massacre and all that that's all because well it all stems back from this you know production error like oh we don't have the romulan ship let's use the klingon ship and we'll just throw a line in there about how they're have an alliance now and that ties into star trek 3 because the cloaking device and it's just at all it's it's crazy man it's it's, it's crazy because it's star trek 3 you have a bird of prey that has a cloaking device and in the original series if everyone remembers klingons didn't have cloaking devices the romulans did right 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 so yeah well we we, we did hit a little bit on star trek 3 but we'll, we'll follow up with that <laughs> soon so let's let's talk about the Romulan bird of prey itself, their original bird of prey. So there's a Klingon bird of prey that we find in Star Trek III um, that originally was supposed to be a Romulan ship, but it wasn't. We go back to the Balance of Terror where we're introduced to this ship, which, you know, it's funny. I look at it now, and it's very simplistic in its design. Of course, it introduces the whole concept of stealth and cloaking technology in outer space, which I thought was really cool that it refracts and bends light around it, just like a, a stealth fighter or a stealth bomber does with radar. It just it just bends it around it so it doesn't it doesn't reflect back, which is is pretty cool. Um, however, it can always be detected on the motion sensor. Thank God for motion sensors. <laughs> um, and I don't know how we lost that technology between. Um, uh, the, the the ten years from the show ending and the movie starting, but that's another story. Hey, Taz, where are you? Anyway, um, when I when I look back at that ship, and like I said, it was very simplistic. Uh, it was kind of a uh, you know round in the front, and it kind of came to a squared back with two engines heading upward, much like the Enterprises, mm-hmm. not not quite as far, and not quite as far. But when you really think about it and you look at it, how close does that remind you of the NX01 Enterprise now? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good. That's a good call, Ken. Yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely see that. I hadn't really seen that before, but uh, it makes you think. Like, were, was Romulan spies, you know, getting intelligence from Starfleet design, and did they incorporate some of that into their own ships? I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But it's uh, again, it's it. It was a very functional design. I believe the ship. I, I don't have specs on the Romulan Bird of Prey. Forgive me, folks, but it, you know that was definitely a. Um, a throwback to to like a submarine i think it was much smaller than the enterprise but you know stealth uh, a lot of heavy technology uh, you know huge weaponry obviously it had an incredible weapon on board just incredibly destructive uh couldn't couldn't shoot unless uh it was uncloaked because of the energy that it commanded to shoot that weapon which then became the norm for all cloaked ships that became their achilles heel mm-hmm. is they couldn't shoot while cloaked and I'll never understand why that is the case, but you know, just but but from a um, narrative reasons, Ken. <laughs> well, well, I guess where I was going from that, uh, Zach, is you know, once a submarine itself uh, either uh, uses its sonar or fires a weapon, it is instantaneously located, whether you can see it or not. You know, technology would be able to tell you exactly where that is, mm-hmm. right? And so it it is interesting that they they went with that tone because it it shouldn't be that difficult. Um, and technology keeps up. You know, uh, it's one of those things where they should be able to find it. So 
I'm going off track here. I'm going on a, a, a down a, down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go down today. But uh, overall, I I, th- I thought the best part of the ship was the fact that it had that bird painted on the bottom of it. Oh, yeah. it it was it was pretty cool in in that aspect, but for its design, it was fairly rudimentary. But that's okay. It was a very practical ship, and it did what it needed to do. And uh, you know, we'll go back and say, hey, the aesthetics on this aren't that big a deal. It's is an effective type of ship, and that thing caused a lot of damage. Yeah, I'm really glad that they came up with a conceit that look, in order for this thing to fire a weapon, it has to uncloak. Because I mean, it would be unstoppable, you know, as we saw in Star Trek Six down the road here. Like you need, you need that kind of give. Like it's a good way to to, to just look at these things logically. Like these things take energy, you know. It all makes perfect sense if you if you're like, okay, if you're gonna have this much energy to stay, you know, hidden, invisible, you can't, you know, fire a weapon while you're so. So it's a good conceit of of the ship that makes it not just this crazy unstoppable force, right? Everything like this needs its Achilles heel, as you as you put it very well, Ken. Uh, you know, and I, I really like this design. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. probably the third most well-known ship from the original series, uh, mostly because it was an actual model and not just some blurry blob <laughs> in the background like many other ships oh, were. Oh, from the TV show, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you have liked to have seen more of this? Like, had, had they not lost the Bird of Prey model, would you have liked to have seen this again, like in the Enterprise incident? I would have, yeah. I, I think that, that would have made more sense. Obviously, the plot device that was used like you said, due to production reasons, which is incredible, um, and drove that direction. I think that that we probably are better off for the fact that they didn't have the money. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it, because it, it added uh, a lot more intrigue to the the, the whole Romulan-Klingon um, relationship phenomena type of thing. But at any rate, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen it more. And, and if they, you know, and obviously they... The the Romulans wound up having their own their own ships again in TNG, and that, that's a whole different topic. And we you know their their designs were, you know, it actually looked more like a bird if you think about it. But hmm. um, yeah, I, I I would have liked to have seen more, but I, I was happy with the direction they went. Well, those are the most iconic ships of TOS, obviously. But uh, you know, there are a handful more that we should talk about. The Botany Bay would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Botany Bay. Oh no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, so that, that was a DY-100 uh, class ship, and uh, it, it actually appeared now in the original series. It appeared, mm-hmm. again, in the Ultimate Computer as one of the uh, robot ships that uh, M5 right. destroys. Now, that was changed in the uh, remastered version uh, to have um, uh, a, a new design of spaceship, and, uh, and th- th- this new design was actually inspired by the animated series. That was a great thing about, retrospectively, the remastered star trek could look at the animated show and be like oh those are some cool other designs we have some gaps in spaceship designs here let's borrow from this an established you know tos era thing let's not just invent something from scratch let's take an established design so that was cool so we saw that uh new design as the uh antares and charlie x and then we right. saw it as this drone ship in the ultimate computer so that was cool just filling in gaps replacing stop footage with things like that uh which is a really cool cool thing to do um so did you like the botany bay or yeah yeah for what it was you know it it, it actually looks like a submarine with uh with with kind of uh wings uh <laughs> extended wings yeah and flaps off to the side i mean that's what it reminded me of so you know it looked like a practical little ship but uh and you know when we saw the robot ship again i was like i recognize that couldn't get past me old eagle eye trip they call me and i just was like man that that thing is uh yeah it it, it was fine and you know it's uh 
I can't say I disliked it. I think it would have been cool to some degree if we had seen, um, or Star Trek II, if they were able to actually, you know, have the hull of the ship um, on the planet, you know, and, mm. and kind of get a better feel for it. But yeah, it was it was fine. And I thought what they did with the Antares uh, was, was, was pretty cool. You know, and that was, I guess, what I was talking about before. In, in Star Trek, we're so used to things being symmetrical and almost aerodynamical. Um, they went away from that a little bit uh, with with the uh, the Antares and and uh, both in the animated series and, and what they pulled back in the um, remastered version. So I, I like the fact that it kind of it, it went a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking about I mean we mentioned the ultimate computer. There's another uh, stock footage replacement in that episode. The Enterprise goes to a Starbase Six, and that is stock footage from Trouble with Tribbles, the uh, K Seven space station. But instead, what they used is they used a uh, uh, basically the same model they used for the Star Trek Vanguard series by uh, David Mack, that novel series, and uh, it's it, it looks a lot like K Seven, like it's definitely the same family of designs, but it's a little more mm-hmm. compact, it's a little fatter, <laughs> looks a more like our Earth space dock. So uh, just just a cool way to just expand the canvas of TOS uh, ships and station designs for the remastered. Yeah, yeah. Hey, big shout out here to uh, to Christopher Baca for getting us down this 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 lane. Yes, yes, thank you. He, he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> you know, it's funny because when you read the written word and you're trying to figure out tone, I I, I just I just love that entry that he put there on the conference, and it, it made me smile, which is why I responded the way I did with just kind of like <laughs> what well, we are now, because he almost like you are going to talk about this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was and yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up because. Uh, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point because I mean they're replacing like like the Antares, right? That's the and my response was uh, was a picture of that, and there was no yeah. ship there, <laughs> like there was no right. ships <laughs> in the original version. So thank you, remastered team, and thank you, Chris, for for pointing that out. Um, you know, and you can go down the list with all these TOS ships. You know, the one the one the one I really do want to mention though is the Tholian ship. Uh, I found like yep. that was a very unique design. I mean, it's crystalline. So it's just mm-hmm. obviously alien in origin, right? And that's what's so cool because right. the Tholians are very alien aliens. And, and and even like you almost thought like, are these some kind of like biomechanical ships? Because you saw the Tholians, they look very similar to their ships. And, and it was just a very do, cool yeah. thing to see back then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that's a great call out. Those were, those were great ships. And uh, uh, we, we got to see a lot more of it, I think, in, uh, in A Mirror Darkly. And, and what those things could really do and get a good look at what they look like themselves. But yeah, that, they, that was a, that was a very, you know, that was a, uh, uh, I wouldn't say risky, but I would say very creative approach to it. You know, I mean, it's design wasn't, uh, it's shape and so forth. Wasn't, wasn't that, th- that unique, I guess, but it was, it was the looks, the reflective look of the ship, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, um, of a of a great big viper from BSG, right? <laughs> sort true. of, kind of. Well, you know, and yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I think another cool thing about these ships is every species kind of had their own weapon. You know, not everybody had phasers, right? The Rhymans had their plasma right. weapon. The Tholians had their web. You know, that just uh, once again makes the universe more rich. You know, because all these societies would come up with different types of energy technology. It just wouldn't all be photons, torpedoes, and phasers for everybody. Right. Right. And I will say that I actually prefer the original version of the Tholian ships from the 60s to the remastered versions because I feel like they kind of got away from the crystalline look, crystalline look. If you actually look at the remastered versions in detail, they're, they're all they're actually very gray. And yeah. and I just I didn't understand why they got away from that because that to me that was such a cool thing to do. 
and they, they kind of more mm, humanized it, you know, Earthized, Starfleetized the ship looking a little bit. So that is one, and I would just, I would be curious to, to, to know why they made that, such a drastic change because, I mean, you, you, you could just copy and paste the original Tholian ships and they'd look perfect in, in, uh, in the remastered version. But anyway, that, that's a, just, just my opinion on that, so. Yeah, it's, it's a fair, it's a fair call out and a good question to ask as to the why. Sure, why not? Okay. Anything else on the TV side of things before we move on to the movie era? Ah, oh, man. Well, you know, there's 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 little things here and there, but you know, I mean, there's the Corbinite maneuver ships, but those are basically look exactly the same from original to remaster. The glowing cube was cool. The giant, mm-hmm. the the uh, uh, Fasarius, the first Federation ship was pretty just just in scale was amazing. That was a, amazing. That's another iconic shot of the original from the original series i mean it's established how big the enterprise is and you see it just get dwarfed by this giant ship the borg cube of its time right uh the doomsday machine basically a literally a windsock with cement <laughs> but hey windsock with cement that that, okay. that is not that's not the point is how it looks the point is you know it's it's, it's a it's an eons old kind of sh- kind of uh ship or you know weapon so it's it you know it got battered up it, it you know it looked like it had been through space for millennia getting beat up and and yeah i mean you know then you have your random you know blob energy blobs and stuff like that stuff like the orion the orion <laughs> ship was like the spinning light and stuff like that uh over the course of the show but you know on the whole look for 1960s television star trek this was cutting edge stuff in the 60s i know today it looks cheap and we can all laugh at it right you know like oh look at that but this stuff was this stuff was cutting edge in, in in the early '60s, and you 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 know you weren't seeing spaceships and stuff on a regular basis. So when you did see what you saw, I was like, wow, that's cool. And it wasn't as we always say, it's not. It's more the sto- like if the stories aren't good, who cares how the special effects look? And since the stories are good uh, and they're compelling and engaging, they they prop up any kind of questionable looking effects. And as all as everything in the original series, and this goes for Aliens as well. Like I give them credit for going out there trying something you know taking a chance taking a swing i'd rather swing and a miss than you know watching a called strike three to use a baseball analogy you know playing it safe so yeah well everything's relative i think zach you know in in the 1960s if you're watching this in the 1960s and you're watching it on tvs that don't have hd many of them don't have color i mean those effects were were pretty awesome and you know the ship looked pretty good and even Today, when you just watch maybe scenes of the ship, um, you know, just, just just zooming around amongst the stars or whatnot, it doesn't really look all that bad. I, I mean, I thought they they it it still kind of holds up. It obviously struggles with uh, you know going around planets without atmosphere and and you know the the tougher things that it would that were tough to create um, and tougher to pull in. But you're you're you're, you're absolutely right. I I don't. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the fact that if the the effects aren't there, that the that the the story holds up as much. If it's a really good story, I, I I think it does with us. I think we can appreciate it. I think it's tough for new fans, though. Hmm. Yeah, I really do. I, I I think it's tough for them to watch the 1960s aesthetics um, and and not get pulled out of it because of those aesthetics. And and that's fine. We grew up with it, so we we tend to just move on. Uh, and and we keep we keep saying the same thing over and over. <laughs> ah, but that's a great story, and they're absolutely right. And and we kind of just kind of gloss over 
you know, the fact that, you know, the, the ships or the buttons or the things and the that, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But right. That's well, okay. you know, I it's... and I am younger, but I grew up watching the original series. Mm-hmm. So this has been like you know, mythology to me, you know, sure, <laughs> it's like, sure, oh, sure. Th- this is how it is. This is just how it is, you know. Uh, yeah. So but if I were going to show like, you know, trying to introduce other people to Star Trek, I would definitely show them the remastered versions, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a wise move. Yeah, I think that's a wise move. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, you know, and all right, pe- we're gonna yeah, get in go trouble ahead. if we don't mention one last ship here. Again. Go ahead. The Gal- I don't like getting in trouble. Keep me out of trouble, man. The Galileo shuttlecraft. The Galileo. Oh, is that a ship? Okay. Well, all I right. mean, that, well, it, <laughs> you don't think that's a ship? <laughs> no, I think it's a shuttle. It's an, it's an extension of the Enterprise, right? But uh, I don't know. I, I got a twenty-three foot boat. Is that a shuttle <laughs> or a ship or what, what the hell? Yeah, it's a, a boat. It's not it's a, a ship. Well, anyway, I, I, you know, it has it has nacelles. It's it's self. Uh, it's it's uh, has agency. It can go places. So I really like the shuttlecraft uh, Galileo design. It, it's actually from obviously it's from the same family as Enterprise as the uh, nacelles, but they're kind of capped off nacelles. So I don't know. I don't know what that implies. Maybe it doesn't have warp drive. I don't know. Uh, I feel like I definitely know these old shuttles didn't have transporters. I don't know if they had warp drive or not. But uh, it was cool. It was obviously more boxy. Than the Enterprise, and uh, it was featured in quite a few episodes. I had, you know, Galileo Seven mm-hmm. as an episode named after it. So, uh, and I, I actually yeah. got to see the Galileo. It's been it's been refurbished, and you know, I'll, I'll post my picture on the Babel Conference. But I actually got to see it here. They uh, it's on loan right now around the country for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. But it was refur- it was found in like a junkyard and refurbished, and then uh, exhibited here in Houston at Space Center in Houston, which right. I literally live right down the street from. <laughs> so uh, I've got to see it a couple times in person. It's so cool to walk up to it and see it. And I know Star Trek continues when they when they featured the shuttlecraft uh, in uh, Ferris of the Mall. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they actually came down here and filmed uh, around the shuttle here. And it's so, so cool to, to see, like, this is the actual prop life-size, because it was a life-size prop, and that was so cool about it uh, to see. And it's basically like a, a, a well, to your point, it's kind of like a school bus in space. It's not really. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a, it's a ship design that was in space, and, you know, it just adds another flavor to the original series. Like, it, I'm just very happy that the quote-unquote shuttlecraft wasn't a little light floating around in space right it was like had its own model it was its own thing i like it a lot yeah no, they put some effort into it i thought and it, it again it's a very practical design it's effective it works it's uh it, it was it was pretty neat you know I, I i liked it just fine so you kept us from getting into trouble because i i guess in in, in that context someone you know, would have brought it up i'm sure <laughs> Oh, come on. You know, I mean, the, the, a lot of our friends there on the Babel Conference, they don't know much about Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> that, see, now you're going to get us in trouble anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I say that with heavy sarcasm, folks, because I learn so much every every day I go on there with the stuff that people pull up. And you can tell that the things, it just sometimes in response times, these aren't people going back and looking up deep data. This is like wired in tight. This is stuff they've known for years and years and can spit it out as as fast as anyone can. It's amazing to me because I used to be that guy, but it was only one series and it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And and now you've got these folks out there that can, you know, the Atazas of the world yourself, Bichets. Oh, my God. I, I don't even know how they hold so much data in their heads considering, you know, as many as many series as they are. It's but funny. Anyway, I don't I don't I'm think impressed. like. I don't even realize it's there, but then I get in some deep conversation with somebody. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're reliant, you know, the prefix code and stuff like that. Yeah. How do I know this stuff? It's actually kind of scary. So 16309. <laughs> exactly. Why things get work it right? Starship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The stuff we remember. 
All right, let's move on to the movies. You, you kept us out of trouble. We talked about the uh, the Galileo, and uh, and and I'm glad you did. I'm glad you brought that up. But let's let's move on. So first things first, uh, we we have to launch. Even though it was not the first ships we saw in the motion picture, but we have to start off with our Enterprise, our beloved Enterprise. So they refit the TV show Enterprise, and they call it a refit. I guess it was 85 to 90 percent refit. This is almost a totally uh, new Enterprise. Yeah. Almost a totally new. I think they might have kept one layer of paint or something. I don't know what they did. But uh, at, at any rate, uh, they, they, they redesigned the ship. Uh, basic shapes, uh, pretty much the same. But gone was the um, the sensor dish. Uh, and, and in came, you know, more of a, uh, of a of a internal, I guess, deflector system that we see going forward. Uh, the ship's engines were more streamlined, even more aerodynamic, if you want to put it that way, thin and long um, and, and not tubular anymore. And the primary hull design, the Sarsa section, just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. They just, they just made it, a, I think, probably just a little bit more asymmetrical. Um, the lettering, the numbering, everything kind of fit differently. Uh, everything was um, almost to the gnat's ass on the aesthetic pieces of this or the Aztec designs that they put in this. So everything was aligned perfectly. It is by far, and there is no close second. Where are you, Aaron Harvey, Trey Womack? This is the best ship ever in the history of Star Trek. I love the refit 1701A. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, the, it's an improvement on perfection. Right, I mean, how do you, that's what it is, right? The original that's series. That's a great way of putting it. Yes, it, it, it's perfection, and then this is an improvement on it, and that's crazy. I mean, that's what I was saying about like, you know, you talk about the Kelvin ship, like, oh well, you know, you got to change it, and of course, you're not gonna. Fans are always not gonna like changes, and blah blah blah. Okay, well, this was a radical change, and everyone loves this ship. Like, I, I don't know one person that has a problem <laughs> with this ship. You know? Uh, yeah, it may not be their favorite. You're right, right. but they, I, I don't know of anybody who doesn't like it either. Yeah, and I just, it, it's a very just smart way to do it. It's like, okay, we're in the movies now. This ship is a good design, but we need to, obviously we need a new model. We need to update it. And in-universe, it makes perfect sense. You know, ships go through refits all the time. Maybe not as extreme as this. It might have been cheaper just to make a new ship. But, hey, there's no money in the 23rd century, so who cares? Uh, <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> Starfleet's not a military organization, Ken. We know this. Um, Keep pushing my buttons, buddy. <laughs> Keep going. The uh, I like the nacelles. I know a lot of people who are big nacelle fans. Uh like you know the cylindrical nacelles with the end cap on it and stuff like that but these movie nacelles i can totally see how they can warp space you know they actually look i can see where the energy would come off of to to go to warp uh from you know, the uh, stripes if you will on the sides of the the updated nacelles and that's something that that they incorporate later on in the next generation era where they have like that blue band that goes around the nacelles and that emanates the warp field uh now in the original series like i don't i don't really know if you look at the nacelle you're like where does the warp field come from obviously they weren't thinking in those terms back then but uh I, this is the perfect combination of of, of uh, function and you know fashion you know style and substance right it's uh it's great and i, I love the ship and i wish you would have seen more of it obviously obviously it's in the first six movies and that's great and this was the reason that i wanted you know one of the many reasons i wanted to see Star Trek Discovery or, you know, the, the new series uh, take place in between Next Generation and the original series movies in that gap there. And Adam Ridgewell on the Babel Conference, thanks for your comment, Adam, he, he, he felt the same way. He's like, look, I wanted to see more of these Constitution refits. Uh, I'm sure they'd be flying around in that era. And I, and I agree. I mean, we, we love this design. We want to see more of it. 
Um, and we never will really until we get that show. I'm sure eventually Star Trek will get there. That's such untapped potential, that 80-year gap between Star Trek VI and Encounter at Farpoint. So I'm sure we'll get there, and I'm sure we'll get to see more of this ship at some point. Um, I mean, originally, the Stargazer was supposed to be this Constitution refit. If you look at uh, the episode The Battle from Next Generation, uh, if you look at uh, LaForge, you know, Jordan LaForge, he's, he's saying, oh, it looks like it's a Constellation-class sh- uh, ship, but if you read his oh, lips, I do remember he that. says yeah, Constitution yeah, yeah. because the original plan was Picard's old mm-hmm. ship was going to be, you know, the moving Enterprise, but they decided, no, no, that, that's Kirk's ship. We don't want to make that Picard's old ship, so let's let's switch it out. And I love the Stargazer, by the way, so I, I, that's a great decision. I'm glad they did. But I guess bottom line is, what I'm trying to say with all this is, I love this ship design, and I want to see more of it, and I'm sure we will eventually down the road. Yeah, I, I hope so. If if you switch from external to internal, and uh, this this is what you know, Aaron Harvey, I think, nailed it. It was the first time in Star Trek that the ship really seemed fully functional. Right, that everything had a place, uh, and you know where everything was supposed to be. People knew where they were supposed to go, uh, and the engine—I mean, not the engine—the design. Everything was just very, very specifically laid out. You know, you could see from where the shuttlecraft uh, becomes attached to the cargo bay right out through the through the stern of the ship. Um, in every aspect, even the color scheme. I know people are like, oh, it was gray, and it would seem like it was lifeless, that type of ship or whatnot. Actually, it was very, very practical, you know, uh, in in design. And it, all the other ships that are used in Star Trek going forward to all the other series, this was it, man. They just redesigned or widened everything they had built for the Enterprise A, right? Everything, the bridge, you name it. Mm-hmm. And the bridge was phenomenal. I mean, it was just absolutely phenomenal. Adding that second elevator, making it perfectly symmetrical. Mm. Uh, Each station had um, real practical reasons for how they did things, whether it was the navigation station, even the helm, you know, before they they changed it much, a weapons console, a real real tactical station. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, damage control. All those things were just really engineering. It was all really well uh, spaced out, played out. And it just it just really, really hummed. It, it really made me feel like I was on a real ship and that I could see how everything worked. They in and that's why the damn show, you know, a lot of people don't like the movie or don't like it as much as I do for, for reasons I completely understand, by the way. It's very sterile um, and the plot doesn't move that quickly. I get all that. But if you're somebody who's into how things work and how they should work, that movie just sucks you right in because... It's phenomenal that way, you know. Even even when they they walk outside on the ship, it was really really cool. So you get a real sense of scale for the mm-hmm. first time. Yeah. And I thought the most beautiful shot I've ever seen, of of the seventeen oh one, was at the very end of that movie when when V'ger dissolves, mm-hmm. and the ship is there over the planet with the light behind it. I thought it was just that's when I was you know there were several shots in that scene with the sun coming up behind it or whatever. Mm-hmm. They really made the ship gorgeous that, they just did and they never lit it uh again the way they lit it uh in the motion picture other than when they use stock footage <laughs> and uh they, they never captured it the same way again it's the same model it's the same ship it's wonderful but the changes that they made both externally and internally um didn't make it as as good as the first movie it just it'll never be that that gorgeous a ship to me and and i don't know if they'll ever put that effort into it now the reboots we can talk about that when we get to the reboots but 
it was a it was a wonderful wonderful uh, design. Yeah, that that scene you mentioned at the end of motion picture. That's actually my Twitter header. If you go to my Twitter, uh, I have the, oh, the it, yeah. Enterprise right over just after the the big light dissolve, but the Enterprise right over Earth there coming towards camera. So that's uh, I love that shot as well. It's a very iconic shot. Lots of iconic shots of the of the 1701 here. And, uh, you know, to, to talk a little bit of minutia, you know, that we see, this is the only film where we see the deflector just change from gold to blue. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding that when the warp drive was active, it was blue. And when it wasn't, it was gold. That's what I have heard, read, uh, seen. <laughs> I, okay. All this Star Trek stuff I've assimilated, no pun intended, over the years. Like, I'm not sure where I get this information from sometimes. But that, I believe that is why sometimes you see the dish be gold and sometimes you see it be blue. But if I'm wrong or someone has a different explanation, please let us know in the Babel Conference. You know what else is in You want to talk about minutia, and I was having this discussion with uh, Richard Marquez the other day. <clears throat> I said, I, I used to have a set of blueprints right after that movie came out, right? Because I, I love that. If, I, if you haven't guessed yet, folks, I really like this ship. <laughs> uh, so I, I got the blueprints, and part of it's... Um, uh, features part of the features of the ship is that it had a cloaking device what and yeah so you yep, yep, 1979 yep, yep. blueprint i guess you got it right that, after the movie yeah yeah if you find it now it, it was funny because i'm having the conversation of course uh rich is like no way and or that, that's not and he's, he's looking up things online he's like i don't see it anywhere i'm like dude i know what i saw <laughs> if i if i was the type of kid who had any clue about what being a quote-unquote collector is mm-hmm. Um, and had saved things like that. You know, I, the, the thing is, I used them, and I would, I'd pull them out and maybe not fold them exactly the way you should, you know, so things get worn and torn, and then eventually it, it, wasn't, it wasn't any good. You're like Scotty, but, just relaxing with your technical manuals, huh, Ken? You know, that, that's me. And, you know, it, it's, it's still that way. I, I don't have a ton of collectibles. I've got a lot of things that are older in Star Trek, but they would not be what you would consider pristine condition. Mm-hmm. You know, old books and things like that that I've kept. Um, because I don't collect them because I want to keep them nice to sell them. I, I have them around because I think I'll probably look at it again or read it again. And that's just how I roll. But it, it doesn't matter. I am telling you for a fact that it had a cloaking device. So were these for like, were they part of a book or are they just independent blueprints that these were? It was like you would get in a, um, like a real set of blueprints on. I, I forget how they sold them. Okay. But uh, yeah, it was in a pack. And and they were poster size, if not bigger. Wow. I mean, it, they, they they were two or three in a pack, and uh, you know it had top, bottom, and side views, forward and aft views, the whole nine yards, um, and you know really really neat. I mean, I, I man, I wish I had kept those, not just because I could show people that you know uh, that it had a cloaking device, but or in it or it showed where it was, which was I believe on the secondary hall towards towards the bottom there is where it was located. Well, I, I guess they was... just kept it after the Enterprise incident, right? I guess that's... <laughs> well, why wouldn't they, right? So, I mean, that, that's, that, was, that was my point to, in this discussion I was having. And it, was, it wasn't a, a podcast discussion. It was just a discussion. And I was saying, well, why wouldn't they? Why, right. why wouldn't you keep it, you know? And I've said this before on Standard Orbit. Let me tell you something, folks. You know, um, people that are on the good side of things or good organizations do not exist off the charity of evil ones. They don't. So that's going to be one of our episodes one of these days, I think. This whole concept of, of allowing uh, people that are a threat to you to be more powerful than you and then think that that's okay. I, I believe, to paraphrase Gene Roddenberry, his explanation was, we're the good guys, we don't sneak around. So we can, we can dissect 
Matt's point of view in that future episode. They'll sneak around (laughs) until we steal one. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect response to that. So, you know, we could probably spend the next hour talking about the the, the refit. And then, of course, the A, because it's the exact same ship. They changed the bridge a little bit on the inside. Uh, To me, I personally still prefer... Yeah, yeah, they changed it every movie. I prefer the uh, one, two, three bridge, you know, uh, as opposed to the the a bridge and five and six they both look radically different uh but i yeah this uh, the original series uh tos proper that bridge is the most iconic but the motion picture bridge is the best bridge in my opinion yeah i i like you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me i like one and five you, you like five more than six huh yeah yeah i do i do um and I, I just yeah it's it's it reminded me more of the motion picture one once you know they stopped dropping tools and stuff all over the place yeah but you never got a clear it, look at it really stuff was people were falling nah, out of the it wasn't and... <laughs> yeah yeah you know what what Meyer did was fine with it by the way I I don't dislike what they did in Star Trek two obviously it had aged they made it more practical they had you know fire extinguishing systems and you know there was more wording on things and you know exit no smoking it, it, it had a lot of a lot of well i don't think it had the no smoking yeah, he wanted he, gonna, no smoking, he, was, he wanted no. it on but they didn't put no. it on but <laughs> so he made it he made it um you know with a lot more lights blinking he liked the lights i remember him saying he liked that that effect and and so forth and the colors were different and and you know they were trying to do something very different and every director has to put his 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 feel or his touch on things mm-hmm. i completely get it i mean it's just like in um, the next generation from from the last episode to the movie, the bridge radically changed, the lights radically changed. They do all these things different just to give it kind of a different flair. I get it. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. But I think my preferences were definitely the the original bridge, uh, and then the Star Trek Five. The other ones were fine though. I, I mean, did, uh, two did and, the Star two and Trek and Five and Six bridges have the um, armrest that became seat belts? Or do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like. You know, because that's what I really liked about the uh, the, uh, the motion picture. The motion picture, and then you know, two and three. You know, every chair had those armrests, and they bring them down, and they kind of secure you in the chair. Because you know, the big the big criticism of Star Trek goes, "Why don't they give these guys seat belts? They're always flying around the bridge." And that was a great answer right. to that—a very practical design. And then you know, even those buttons had, you know, even those armrests had buttons on it and stuff like that. So uh, I don't recall they didn't spend obviously spend as much time, you know, uh, on the bridges of five and six as they did in the first three movies. So. Um, I would have to assume that the captain's chairs were always the same ones. No, I, don't I, think I know them. that they were different in five and six. Uh, oh, were they? they huh? It was not the same. Like Kirk says in five, I miss my old chair. So it's a different chair. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, the old ship got blown up. I get it. I, I just assume that, uh, you know, that they, they, they might have, re, you know, uh, put new material on them or something, but that right. they were essentially the same. But, I think at okay. that point, Next Generation was reusing those on a regular basis whenever they went to another ship. <laughs> You know, <laughs> well, the battle bridge, right? Was um, yeah, was the battle bridge is one, but whenever you saw like the Stargazer or the Hathaway or or mm-hmm. any any kind of old Star Starfleet ship, they 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 pulled out those old you know chairs and stuff from from the first three movies. Yeah. Oh, I see, I see. Damn those those generation people! What they did to my beloved <laughs> ship. Also, in the motion picture, you have the the new Klingon battle cruisers, not the D sevens, but the Katinga class battle cruisers and as much as the uh, enterprise refit was like a true refit like a, you know the ship same looking ship but very different and all the finer details this was just like an h if you like an hd passover like a re-render and more quality of the d7 that's what the katinga is it looks exactly the same but there's just so much intricate detail on the ship and there's those opening shots of it where we just 
going real close, and 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 we see this swooping shot of the three Klingon uh, battle cruisers they love so much. They reused it in, again in Star Trek Two. Uh, great reintroduction to just the aesthetic of the Klingons, which was reinvented here. As, mm-hmm. as, as much as the Klingons themselves look different, their ships look almost identical, really, to the original series. Yeah, they do. They they didn't change them much, but now you. Yeah, like you said, you now understand that that was a torpedo launcher, not a deflector dish, hole, caveat, whatever that was in the on the on the bow of the ship. Right. Uh, you could clearly make out where the bridge was located by the way they zoomed in, and then you started to see it. Which it's funny because they had it in Star Trek motion picture. They went away from it in Star Trek Three, and then they kind of brought it back, four, five, six, and then in the TNG series, just the look of the Klingon bridge mm-hmm. with. I don't know what else to put them. They almost look like giant shock absorbers, right? <laughs> um, there's a. It's very dark. There's there's steam and smoke, and you know it has a it has a very um, uh, you know this is not a ship for comfort. This is a ship of war uh, with some pretty cool technology, by the way. I, I love the uh, the bridge of this ship. I love how the stations actually could rotate um, and and move around. You know, with with the captain right there. It it was it was a really cool design uh and they like i said for for star trek 3 they really changed the uh the look of a klingon bridge with with that bird of prey but it all kind of slowly migrated back to that look in the motion picture but yeah great great looking ship you could see the impulse drives you could see the warp drives you could see how things worked uh and it and it it's it's one of those things where as you get away from from starfleet ships completely from starfleet ships I don't remember seeing any other vessels that had, and even other Starfleet ships, you don't see vessels that have deflector dishes anymore or how they would use, or where they would put the deflector or how they're designed. So very interesting. I can't tell you how the Klingons keep particles from whacking their hull at warp Maybe speed, it's but. the uh, the backpack, as I've always called it, on the back of the ship. Maybe that thing emanates some kind of energy to, uh, to deflect things in space. I don't know. Well, it it doesn't do it from the front, which is kind of an odd thing. Yeah. So it's from a practicality point of view, maybe you're right. But it, it's it's almost like um, they just did not wove that into the designs of of a lot of ships going forward. It was it wasn't something that the uh, the people were thinking about. Well, I think right? I and, think ultimately they just decided this would look really cool to have this torpedo shot come out of the front nose of this ship. <laughs> and I think it all just came from and, there, you know. And it does look yeah, really cool. And the so. stern, right? That was the first time we saw. <laughs> yes, a, an aft torpedo from the Klingons. Aft torpedoes, yes, yeah. yeah. So yeah, all the way around. That's what I mean. It was definitely uh, th- those three ships were were built for war. And uh, you're right. They they kept essentially the same shapes, just like they did with the Enterprise. They just modified it a little, tweaked it, darkened it, and uh, and came up with some some real badass vessels. Yeah, we see this ship. You know, uh, the next movie in stock footage. We see it again in uh, Star Trek Six is the Chronos One. We see it in the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. We even see it in Voyager. We even see this design. So in one episode, so uh, they get their money's worth out of this design. It's a beautiful design, and and you know, great seeing it. It's an effective, good-looking ship, yeah. And it, like a lot of things, because of uh, budget and and timing, seem to you know have a hundred-year lifespan. Yeah, exactly, cool. exactly. Continuity for the win. Uh, budget for the continuity <laughs> win. There. There you go. So we never got to see this ship, you know, the Katinga class fight the Enterprise, but we did get to see the Reliant fight the Enterprise. So this is Reliant was huge. This is our first time ever seeing another Starfleet ship. Once again, chronologically speaking, I know this remastered stuff going on. Then uh, the first time we saw in live action, another Starfleet ship that was not a constitution class. What do you think of the Reliant, Ken? I love the Reliant. It's, uh, 
it's got a great profile. It's it's stocky. It's small. Um, it it look you know has a roll bar. I mean, come on, it's like a Mustang, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's a neat looking vessel. It's a, it's a, it, it it's a really spoiler, is. as they call it, it these days. A spoiler. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, a spoiler. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, spoil. Okay. I, I mean, a roll bar has a purpose, and so does that thing. I know. I'm just being silly. But. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. But I mean, it is interesting how they, um, how they design that ship, and and I, you know, the. the uh, the idea of going down with with the engines and so forth, and and you can talk a little bit more about technically how that that happened. Um, you know, they they always say sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I think that definitely hits that premise there. But I, I thought it was I thought it was a really cool design. I mean, it was it's a, a supposed to be a smaller ship, but it's a very heavily armed ship. So, you know, uh, as you as 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 you and Richard like to to, to pull my chain about the star, the, you know, is Starfleet military or whatnot. Um, you know that was a ship that was being used for exploration and scientific purposes, but it was armed to the teeth. It was a compact little ship that packed quite a wallop. Tough little ship. Uh, Tough little ship. So yeah, uh, to your point, Ken, about how the Reliant came to be, Nicholas Anastasio. Please let me know mm-hmm. if I pronounce your name correctly, uh, Nicholas. But I mean, you pointed out the story that uh, Harv Bennett was given this blueprint uh, as he was like boarding a plane. He was kind of in a hurry. He took a look at it. And he just, yeah, it looks good, and he signed it, but he was looking at it upside down. So, cause, because originally the Reliant was supposed to be just having the nacelles above the saucer, just like the Enterprise did. Uh, but because Harv Bennett looked at it upside down and signed it upside down, they were like, uh, I guess we're going to make it upside down. But that was just, just a brilliant just happenstance that, that they incorporated because that immediately makes it a very different looking ship than the Enterprise. It, and then it, it makes it, you know, kind of like a Klingon ship where it has those wings on the side that are pointing down or it's swooping down at the Enterprise. So uh, that just adds a whole lot of character to the Reliant that, that you know, it still would have been a good looking ship uh, with the nacelles on the top, but it just, you know, it, it's a different flavor of a Starfleet design that's great to see finally, you know, in the original series chronology. Yeah, yeah, it had a... Uh... It had a it had a great little like a in 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 the navy terms it, it, it's it's like a corvette it's small it's compact it's it's loaded with weapons uh, it it definitely had a, a menacing uh, tough look to it and I guess it's it's supposed to be an older ship if I remember right uh, an older ship that lasts again for another hundred years yeah. which is kind of cool but uh, that ship's you know, been out um, of commission for eighty years. <laughs> Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought, yeah. There were there were seven people that just died on a ship on an epic. Never mind. Yeah. So anyway, um, it, there was um, the the one thing that I that I always remember about the Alliant and what I really loved about Star Trek Tour, Star Trek T-Walk, the Wrath of God. <laughs> what I really liked about Star Trek Two was when those two ships were converging on each other, right? And um, they, at one point, when the music just gets really loud and the ship is you're looking right at the bow at kind of an angle with the uh, the red lights from, from where the torpedoes get launched from, it just was like, man, that was such a beautiful shot of that ship. And, and it, uh, it, it really just kind of like raises the tension tenfold because you know the, uh, the Enterprise is about to, to take a wallop. And it was, it was really, really well done. And I... I like the way that the ship survives um, for for so many years. I guess, you know, the next time we see, um, I guess, what would be the modern version of it would would be the Phoenix, maybe in in the next generation. Oh, uh, oh like a, like a new model of this. I see what you mean. Same yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I know they have different classes and so forth. Yeah, but the Nebula class ship. Yeah. 
Nebula class ship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, obviously, they they made that ship enormous. Um, and so I remember the Phoenix, and I remember the Farragut. Um, mm, at the end of generations, being, yeah. At the end of generations, being you know very similar to the Reliant. But before we saw the Phoenix, and before we saw the uh, the Farragut, and and it, with that with that design, and we see it, I guess, also at the beginning of the um, of the of first contact. Uh, that that ship model is used a zillion times. It's used in Deep Space Nine. I mean, it seems to be like the primary warship for God's uh, sake. The Miranda class is what you mean? Yeah, the Miranda class. It's yeah. used over and over. I mean, we see you it know, in that... uh, uh, early seasons of TNG, as we were joking about. And we see it, you know, in, in the giant yeah. fleet shots. It's this and the Excelsior, which we'll get to next. But these two ships, the workhorses of the Federation for 100 years, man. Yeah, they really were. I mean, sometimes they had the roll bar, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they had the roll bar with the torpedo launchers. Sometimes they had um, 1943 battleship turrets on the top of it, <laughs> on the Bozeman. I mean, they really had. Uh, they they did a lot of funky things with this this little ship. And uh, well, even Cisco's ship in uh, Emissary. Uh, you know, when we see the, the flashback Saratoga. to Deep Space Nine, the Saratoga. He's on a ship like this without a roll bar, I believe. Uh, and to and to tie everything back into what we were talking about at the very beginning, way back at the beginning of the podcast, uh, the this Miranda class can separate in emergencies because as we see in emissary, you know, uh, they eject off from the ship, which is a great shot. We see you know the the kind of kickback of the ship, uh, the the star drive section, if you will, of the Miranda class, you know, uh, shooting off from the saucer section, and then the Borg destroy the saucer section. And we got that great shot of Cisco seeing it get destroyed in the reflection, but. Uh, but yeah, so so these ships have built in, you know, emergency break breakaways, which is interesting. They were planning that far ahead back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, how, it it probably got it got used to a point where it seemed to get a little odd. But that was a, a similar thing. I, I obviously think that um, from a philosophical point of view, maybe eighty years was kind of a stretch to drive out the next generation. Although they were looking for some some separation there. Um, they didn't have the money or the the ability to create the aesthetics of of things that would be eighty years in the future. So they kept going back the old way. Right. I mean, and, uh, uh, season four, uh, the uh, and the wounded is when we first see the phoenix, and that's you know next generation was finally you know on its own hitting its peak. You know they finally you know, yep. had, had gotten out of the shadow of the original series and could define their own look. And that's like as you said, can that's when we finally got you know if there were a a refit of the of the reliant if you will it would look like the uh, the phoenix the nebula class right right yeah, yeah but i i i like that look i like that design i think they whether it's the old one or the modern one it's 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 a cool looking vessel mm-hmm. and you know and khan is using the ship against kirk right and it's a smaller ship than the enterprise and that 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 just kind of it makes it more interesting because the villain has to overcome like having a, a less powerful smaller ship and use it uses wits to defeat his enemy as opposed to some of the more recent star trek films where it's like the the enemy has this big doomsday ship with this giant weapon and the, the enterprise is like a speck next to it it's like that doesn't make it near as interesting when in my opinion anyway when you have just such outrageous uh difference in in, in odds there you know because the reliant and the enterprise are pretty evenly matched yeah that, i think I, I don't think one was one more powerful than the other uh in terms of weaponry and armament right uh, it's 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 pretty interesting but i think you i think you make a good call out there i that that you know the the enterprise um up until the movie era uh in both series uh it just was was a ship that you know was was pretty powerful and people feared and in the movies they became ships that you could just kick the you know what out of <laughs> cannon it got, fodder. That, yeah 
it, it, to me that just got old. It's like no, 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 don't, don't, don't mess with my ship. But anyway, uh, that's another another time, another day. So uh, one of the things before we get on to the final final starships, and there was there's a few more to review. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, the Vulcan. Now, you, you know, I was teasing you about the shuttlecraft and isn't a ship. Mm. Um, they had a shuttlecraft that was on a sled, right? The Vulcan um, high-speed shuttlecraft. Mm. Right. Um, that, was, that was a pretty neat um, design, I thought. It was the, the Sarek, mm. and um, it had two, two warp engines, uh, and, and uh, it kind of... Um, if if you're if you're a Star Wars fan too, and you remember, I think more specifically in um, uh, Star in the third the third episode, the uh, the, Re- the Revenge of the Sith, they kind of have that same concept, right? Where you have a star drive, and then when you have to go fast, you connect yourself up to the oh sled yes and yes, zoom. and uh, the, yeah. the Jedi starfighter and attack the clones in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, no, I follow you. Yeah. Th- that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was one of those things where it was kind of. Uh, it, it didn't have a big place in the movie uh, for a long term, other than it was a real cool special effect where the thing kind of just, you know, does a th- does this big flip and then it, it backs into the docking port and out comes Mr. Spock, which is obviously hmm. a, a huge moment in the movie. But that... that Mr. That, Mr. That concept Mr. and Spock. idea... <laughs> yeah. That, that concept and idea, although, you know, it kind of goes past you a little bit because you're just kind of in R in it, was something that became kind of a... Uh, a method uh, that that was drawn in from, uh, you know, drawn into to kind of the Star Wars thing. It, it was I I don't remember prior to that uh, seeing that 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 same idea where you have a short range ship attached to a long range engine and off you go. Well, have we seen that at all in Star Trek since Ken? I don't think we have. I don't think we've seen it yeah. again in Star Trek. What? No, but I'm just saying it it was it was kind of a cool idea yeah. and concept and. And in, in, in that it's, you know, actually it kind of makes sense. It would work. That's you know, a great you call could, out you, because I... You could land that thing, you know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and and keep that in orbit. And you don't have to put any risk to your warp engine. Just like, just like going to the moon, man. Um, that's right. That's right. That's a good call out, Ken, because much like you overlooked the Galileo, I completely overlooked the, the Vulcan shuttle. I think, you know, it's a beautiful looking ship. But, if you know, when people criticize the motion picture for being like the motionless picture and, and taking too much inspiration from 2001 and not keeping things moving that sequence of the ship arriving and like detaching and like twisting around and like you know that is what people are talking about that is exhibit a or exhibit b maybe because the the pass around of the enterprise the fly around of the enterprise is probably exhibit a uh of like okay let's move things along here so you know it's like admiring you know the aesthetic at the expense of the story momentum you know i think that's what people are talking about but hey we're just talking about ships here and it's a great looking ship and good call with the engine stuff i hadn't thought about that why, thank you, sir. All right. So let's let's move on. We talked about the Reliant. Let's move up to, to Star Trek III. We, we talked about Star Trek III origins not, origins not that long ago. And let's let's call out the USS Excelsior. Why would you want that bucket of bolts? Aye. <laughs> <laughs> if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. Hey, she has transwarp drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That just goes away. Yes, yeah, Sulu, but, uh, Sulu was enamored with the Excelsior from the jump, so I'm glad. I'm glad he got to to be to be a captain. But uh, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on the Excelsior, Ken? I, I I thought it was a pretty good approach at modernizing uh, Star Trek a little bit. So the um, when I first saw it in the movies, and I, I you know I remember it very very clearly. 
um, I thought it was some kind of a matte painting because of the lighting and so mm. forth inside. Yeah, too, kind of two dimensional. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. That shot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, and, and so I was kind of like, hmm, where, where is this going? And it wasn't until they got out of space dock, and you only see it for maybe I don't know, twenty, thirty seconds on screen, maybe if that. It's 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 very small. And when it actually comes about and it comes around the other side of the the space dock and you can look at it and and it has you know same color scheme and everything as the enterprise that's when i finally went oh okay i i thought it was um i thought it was a risk uh in in their design and i remember personally thinking okay so they're they're upgrading now they're they're making a bigger ship and because we weren't that far away removed from from the motion picture and they kind of defined in star trek 3 that the enterprise was 20 years old or or whatever um that this this was the next coming i i didn't like it as much as let's say the enterprise or other ships because of all the things i'd said before mm-hmm. it wasn't quite as symmetrical you know it, it wasn't it wasn't it uh still had that basic starfleet feel it was obviously a much a much bigger ship um, it had kind of a hump across where the uh, the warp nacelles go across uh, the secondary hull. Uh, it, it, it was it was a ship that by the time Star Trek VI came out, and, and when I'd seen it a number of times on TNG, it kind of grew on me over time. Mm-hmm. But I, I think my first reaction to it was like, no, nah, I, I wasn't that enamored with it. And I thought the um, the original bridge, which oh, it's garbage. I, yeah, they spent you know I think they spent maybe a buck fifty, maybe two seventy five, on on its design. I was like, really? I mean, it it almost looked like they had a, a combination of the um, the original series bridge. Uh, well, yeah, and, all the blinking and, lights and, and the, the computer yeah, banks, and cardboard yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it was it, embarrassing, it man. It really was. <laughs> it, okay, uh, that's exactly right. So when you put all that together, I was like, yeah, the the Excelsior didn't didn't impress me much. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as time went on, uh, and they mod, you know, by the time Sulu took command of the Excelsior, and they had modernized the bridge, I thought that bridge design was as good as any. I liked it. I even liked his little table for the tea. I thought yeah. that was really cool. Like, I wonder if that like retracts. You know, I would think that kind of comes up and down from the floor. That that would be interesting. You know, if, if look in the technical manual of that, find that out. But um, I I have a feeling that it doesn't, and that there's a lot of bridge crew with uh, banged up shins. <laughs> like, ah, my Captain. All those yeah. yeoman battle stations. Oh, yeah. Sue <laughs> yeah, was wearing his seatbelt, and you don't want to fall into that thing. Uh, but uh, the thing with the Excelsior, right? Um, look, if they want to do the next step, the next evolution of the the Starfleet design, I think it's perfect for that. I mean, it looks, it definitely looks like it's made by Starfleet, but it, yep. it looks like it's from a different era, you know, uh, as it should. And it kind of has, sure. has the ins. We've been talking a lot about deflector dishes here today, <laughs> but it has the inset deflector dish, which is interesting. A concave. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's a, that's a change, and then the uh, uh, the nacelles are they're kind of like the new Enterprise nacelles, like you know, with the um, I call them the you yeah. know, stripes on the side, but they're but they are rounded a little bit. So so they're just mixing and matching all this stuff in new creative ways, and I like it. Now, do you feel like I and I get the impression? Look, I was I was not even born yet. I was too young for this to know about this. But did people have a backlash against the Excelsior because they thought it was going to be the next Enterprise? Back in the day. I don't remember a backlash about it, to be honest with you. I was expecting the new Enterprise to be an Excelsior design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it feels and, like such a setup. Like, why else would you see this new ship in this movie that we blow up the Enterprise and, oh, that's going to be our new ship? You know, you would assume that back in the day, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, back then we weren't always sure there was going to be a next movie. It wasn't It wasn't like such a firm thing. Very true. And, and, and I recently had... Uh, 
had gone through I Am Not Spock again uh, when he was making his, his um, when he got to the section about making the movies, for three and four. And, you know, he kind of gets reflective on the, the talk of, uh, of uh, you know, going back and forth with Harvey. And it seems like there was absolutely no discussion uh, about what they were going to return to when they came back. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it, when, when they came home, they came home to the Enterprise, mm-hmm. which I thought was risky. And as much as I love that ship and that design, I was myself hoping that it was going to evolve uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. But I was, I mean, neither here nor there. The Excelsior did what it was supposed to do. It just it just took more time for me to to appreciate it, I guess, as, as it went on. Mm-hmm. And that's what Harv Bennett did, man. He, he made a lot of changes. He, he, he rocked that series. Well, I think, uh, and I, yeah, I agree. I think Star Trek, my favorite, like, moment of Star Trek, like, a slice of Star Trek is, you know, Nimoy, Bennett, and Meyer. Like, they have the best Star Trek, you know, those guys together. Yeah. And that stretch is amazing, yeah. yeah. And uh, a lot of that probably, you know, comes from the fact that, you know, they didn't, they weren't concerned about franchises, you know, part well, part five's coming next. How are we going to build up this and set up for part six? They were just telling good stories one after another and making it all work, and it all just came together in a, in a perfect way. But uh, the Excelsior, um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of the villain ship, one of the villain ships in Star Trek Three. so I guess people, maybe that's why they, they kind of didn't like it as much. And I know in the DC Comics run of, uh, of Star Trek, once again, before my time, but I, I, I've assimilated this information somewhere over the years, uh, they actually, when the crew came back, because you know they were still publishing Star Trek comics between three and four, and they had them, they had to have them do something. <laughs> they put right. them on the Excelsior, and that they were on the Excelsior for a while, and that was their new ship. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for the writers had to retcon that every single time a new movie came out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 no. But, fun. but yeah, I like the Excelsior. I I feel like they used it way too much in Next Generation era. But you know, same thing as the Miranda class. Uh, but I understand the production reasons, and uh, yeah, I mean it's a good looking ship. So there it is. Yeah, it worked. It worked. All right, so what's next? Well, the Grissom would be next, and uh, Grissom. Grissom. This is Enterprise calling. Do you read? Send, <laughs> send Captain Esteban my compliments. Captain Esteban. What yeah. is silly? And, you know, hey, you know, that's one thing I always love about about Starfleet, like, you know, that everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's Joe. Hey, how's Bob doing? You know, I mean, how many ships are there? Are only seven of them? Yeah. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Exactly. It's, 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 a, it's a very elite club, the uh, Star Trek Captain's Club. But uh, I guess, you know, but then it, when I see DS9 and I look at thousands of starships, I just go, there's... Well, you know, it was 80 years later, Ken. It's, the times change. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> All right, fair enough. The, fair uh, enough. With the Grissom, we, we neglected to talk about the Grissom last time we talked about Star Trek Origins, which was an oversight on our part. We apologize because the Grissom is one of those other ships, much like, you know, the Excelsior and the Miranda class. We see this ship forever. In Star Trek, we see every single science vessel on Next Generation, and, and maybe a couple times on Deep Space Nine. Obviously, it's not a warship, so we don't see it in the Dominion War like the way we see the Excelsior and Miranda class ships. But um, you know, a, a very creative design. I mean, it looked very different than what had come before. It looked almost Vulcan, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you if yep. you want to look at design inspiration for that. Um, it has the the two sections with no real connector between them, which is like, what do people do? They transport between the top and bottom. Uh, I don't recall. You know, someone said someone we we brought this up, and somebody said something about it being a sensor pod or yeah, I someone don't know. in the book. You're right. Yeah, that that's that's right. That that because it's scientific and mm-hmm. uh, in nature or whatever, it's got some really high powered sensors. So it's all it's all mechanical down there versus you know personnel, mm-hmm. which makes sense, I guess, because mm-hmm. it's a pretty small ship. Yeah, and it's easily easily destroyed too. So oh, it it has a hell of an explosion. <laughs> a lucky shot, sir. 
Yeah, yeah, that that thing can that thing can go up like you wouldn't believe. But. And you know, and the yeah. bridge looks just like the Reliant Bridge. It's like the redressed Enterprise Bridge. Not really much to speak of there. The interior. Yeah, it felt a little bit smaller. I think it was. Uh, I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. it, it definitely was filmed as though it was it was much tighter quarters. Mm-hmm. And in the ship, you know, you know like again. Uh, I think for a research design ship or, or, or whatever, you know, or a scout class vessel, uh, which which uh, was weird because it, it's what the Oberth Oberth class Oberth class Oberth, yeah Oberth class yeah what an awful name but anyway um, you know I thought oh okay so that's the scout class vessel and that's how I always knew it as at any rate it's um, it, it's 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 a fine little ship I thought it, it and again it like you said it has legs uh, as as all these ships seem to do all of them but the Enterprise <laughs> yeah ironically <laughs> enough right the one we like the most we see the least but maybe you know that's why you, you they give us they leave us wanting more that's why we like it so much so is that what it is that's why, ah, I think that's it I gotcha okay yeah I, I like the Grissom but you know there's there I don't think there's a lot to talk about no here. It's, it's kind of in it's, and out you know? <laughs> it's it's there for a reason it's like uh it's it's a red shirt starship exactly uh, that's the, no the red shirt starship it, it really is because it just goes you know it's it's in for a few minutes and boom it's the Chayakovsky well, same yeah, thing kaboom. Next generation, it's like uh I believe in uh uh, every time they come across one, it's like half destroyed. It's inside an asteroid. Like this is very unlucky. Oh, yeah, it's all mucked up. Yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> red shirt ship. I love. That. I think that's going to be the title of this episode, Ken. Uh, we'll see. But anyway, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. But let's 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 talk about its nemesis, the Klingon bird of prey. So Zach, what are your thoughts on that vessel? Well, we talked about the bird of prey uh, quite a bit in our Star Trek Origins episode. Um, you know, it's a great ship. You know, it's an iconic ship. It's right up there. I think, you know, possibly the second most iconic ship in Star Trek history after the Enterprise. What would you say to that, Ken? I would agree with you. Yeah. It definitely is. Yeah. And and again, another thing that happens by accident, right? Supposed to be Romulan. They go with Klingons. Uh, So the design is kind of a hybrid of the two because it has both technologies. It is a um, it's 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 a neat little ship. Its scale is often confusing, mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, because you know it goes against the uh, the original uh, Enterprise refit, and uh, it's it's a person it's a ship that carries twelve people or so, uh, and there are scenes from that where it looks like a pretty small ship, and then there's other scenes where it looks like it's a pretty big ship. In Star Trek Five. Probably the only thing that effects team did right for 27 seconds or less than that, 10 seconds, was that was that shot where it's where they're leaving um, uh, Shakari and you know you have the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey side by side scale, and you, and yeah. it's it's a much much smaller ship right you they finally get the scale right mm-hmm. uh, and then in 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 the next generation it's like the same scale as it was against the uh, the Enterprise from the movie right. era. And you know that the the Enterprise D, I don't know if it's twice the size, but it's it's well. It's as we were about, talking about, there are different yeah. classes of design. That's how they get around it, right? The uh, uh, some kind of K apostrophe name, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. They still only carry about the same amount of people. They're not big ships, really. Well, I, you know, I know in like yesterday's Enterprise, for example, we were talking about this in like the, the like two or three of those that, destroyed. Those were Cavort class cruisers. cruisers. Cavort class cruisers. Cruisers, okay. cruisers, not bird okay. of prey. Oh, okay. So even though they look exactly the same, we're not even calling them <laughs> birds of prey. Okay, I see. Uh, they weren't exactly the same. Now I think that there was a slight color variation oh, on one of the nacelles. Of, co- of course, of course. <laughs> How could I have missed that? 
intricate detail. Uh, but yeah, the, the bird of prey, right? It's it's iconic not only for being almost in every Star Trek film for for a while, but it uh, the, it was a good guy ship for Star Trek Four, right? The our crew, the TOS crew, had it. It's that's the ship that saved the whales and saved Earth, and you know. So there's a lot uh, a lot of, of affinity for that ship for that reason as well. And it lands. You know, we were talking, you know, once again way back at the beginning of our conversation, talking about. Um, the Enterprise landing on planets and the crew walking out and all that stuff. We finally get to see that with the Bird of Prey. And it's so cool how, you know, it, it the wings go up and it lands. It just it has very different modes, you know. It has, like, attack mode where, you know, the wings are uh, on the uh, coming in for, like, swooping in for the kill. And then it has, like, its cruising mode where the wings are sticking out to the side. You can't see right now because it's a podcast, but I'm moving my arms. <laughs> As I'm yes, you are. yes, you are. And then you, you know, look it's like a snow angel, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then it, you know, they they they, uh, they tilt up uh, when they land to be in landing mode, and that's just such a cool thing. I uh, mm-hmm. to, to have a ship like that. Voyager is the only other ship with like the movable uh, nacelles. You know, everything else is so stationary and static with the Star Trek ships, and for any species, so it's cool to see that extra element. And that's all because you know this model was built on a on a film budget, and they could incorporate those kind of you know mechanics into the model. I'm glad they took advantage of that. Uh, for years to come so you know we, we i think we both said our piece about how annoying its use in generations was but hey that's not an original series movie so i don't care <laughs> yeah, that's right that's a different that's that that's for somebody on some other podcast exactly exactly so but uh, you, you know, know it was and, great we, we cite again it's the villain uh, film uh villain ship in star trek 3 it's the hero ship in star trek 4 it's it, you know it's, it's kind of the i wouldn't say it's the villain it's the annoyance <laughs> ship in star trek 5 you know it's kind of a subplot with the klingons star trek 6 is like the ultimate villain ship again they figured out the cloak and uh shooting thing again uh where they where they finally you know cracked that code where they could shoot while they're cloaked which is you know opens up all new possibilities for villainy for them um right so they, they got their money's worth out of this ship more than any other ship more than any other ship in star trek history this ship has been used you got them blowing up by the dozens on deep space nine and the war stories and you know but it's it's a good ship and uh you know i have my hallmark ornament hanging on my christmas tree every year i don't know about you ken but uh <laughs> i like the no I, I can't say I, I i don't have a bird of prey uh, hallmark ornament yet but uh so now you know what to get me yeah. and uh, i'm still trying to figure out what i what i could get you for christmas so I'll, I'll keep i'll keep waiting for that big hint to be dropped whenever that comes gotcha. but at any rate i um yeah I, I agree with you zach it's 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 iconic it it works and and it's another ship that works by accident which is what i love that's what i really love you know they come up with these things or whatnot and the klingons have no business even having a vessel called bird of prey uh but they do uh because up until star trek 3 there was absolutely no sign that the klingons cared a a whit about birds or anything and that was all romulan but Mm -hmm. at any rate it uh it, it works out very very well i love that uh you know the the design of the bridge of the bird of prey in star trek 3 was kind of odd with the kind of the the very um like the color plating and all that other stuff it didn't seem very klingon but man uh when they changed it for star trek 4 and star trek 5 it really found a home and then i guess the from from star trek 5 on that that stayed pretty pretty close the rest of the way Mm -hmm. yeah and in star trek 6 it actually had a had a real helm uh, just like you would have a ship's wheel. Oh yeah. And when they change course <laughs> on the ship, the guy turns it like he's driving a, um, like he's steering a warship, which was which was kind of neat. I don't know how it goes, you know, that, vertical. That's or Nick Meyer at work right there. Yeah, yeah. He just had that that touch to it, you know. Again, that that submarine aspect to it, small, dirty. I mean, it's it's uh, 
Well, it's, it takes inspiration from the Romulan bird of prey, which is the end of the submarine, like we were talking about. So it all ties actually, together. Actually, well, yeah, and then take it back further. Where I was going with it, it it really is the Klingon version of the U-boat. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's it's dirty. It's 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 compact. There's smoke always going. You know, it's it's a, <laughs> it's just a it's just a tough ship with one mission. Mm. You know, stay stealth and take out the enemy. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, uh, just what else could be said about the Bird of Prey, right? It's just uh, one of those iconic Star Trek ships, and and I do I wonder if we'll uh, if we'll see some kind of you know Enterprise had uh, kind of like a proto Bird of Prey in uh, in its timeline. I wonder as as we go into like Star Trek Discovery, even though it's the original series era, if we'll see some kind of similarly upgraded version of the Bird of Prey class of ship uh, from the Klingons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be fun to see what they do with that series. They they I'll tell you one thing. I I'm locked in. I I couldn't be more intrigued about where they're going and what they're going to do. And uh and I I'm really excited for it. So yeah, I I'm I'm sure they will. And and we can we can kind of talk about I guess the um the new version of um the Kelvin timeline on our next show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that's all that's all the ships. I mean, you get like Earth Space Dock, you know, that's cool and we talked about that some and and our Star Trek Origins episode, it's definitely a step up over the dry dock. Although dry dock is cool, mm-hmm. you know, for what it is. I mean, it's it's more like a McKinley Station kind of uh, thing from Next Generation, just like repair and stuff. It, obviously, people aren't. It's not a big, you know, uh, city in space the way Space Dock is. And uh, and yeah, I mean, the, unless we're forgetting anything obvious, I believe that's all of our all of our ships in the original series uh, films. There, Ken. Yeah, this was a, a very very fun conversation, Zach. It went it went a while, and and I know we we try to keep these down to a, to a certain time limit. But when you get on something that's a lot of fun, it's it's also okay just to kind of to listen through. But hey, with all the participation we've had on the Babel Conference around this subject, and all the great people out there that have contributed, I I cannot wait for you guys to listen to this and to give us your thoughts. One on anything we might have missed, or what really makes it appealing to you. And don't forget, you know, when we're on the Babel conference, we can jump all over the place. So if if you haven't partaken on either thread, where we talk about the starships and the main one, the first one was from from a couple of weeks back, around the twelfth or thirteenth or something of September. That one was that was incredible. Um, that thread's still open. Please, by all means, get on there. Give us your opinions. There's great pictures in there. Aaron Harvey's put some shots in there. You put some shots in there. There's there's some great, great pictures and reference in there. Marquez, I think, put the Prometheus in there. Lots of great ships to look at. So take a deep dive. Enjoy. Um, we, we've had a great time talking about this. All right, Cam. Well, we love the starships, and we love discussing them with you on Standard Orbit. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look. And some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. We can't forget the best part of this episode, absolutely, hands down, is how tight Spock's pants are in this episode. He has got some epically tight pants. You know, Brendan, I wasn't really paying attention to that, so I'll take your word for it. But he's like, yeah, Brendan, I can't say I noticed that. (laughs) Literary Treks. Because I love the idea that you have all these artifacts that, that, that all do something different with time. And how do you prevent them from being used? Saturday Morning Trek. Remember, principal photography hasn't even started yet. So these concept designs are just that. Concepts. If this was 1976, you'd be getting sketches. And disco. Melodic Treks. 
those are totally like you could clearly tell that they were going for a, a mamas and the papas kind of vibe with the music that they were that they were doing right and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscription button. That makes it easier for our listeners to find the show when they search for iTunes. And we love new listeners, so please, please, please subscribe directly to Standard Orbit as well as the Trek FM Master Feed and help us increase our visibility for new listeners. Also, we would ask you to help us out with Patreon. Well, what is Patreon? Well, Patreon is the method that we use to fund the network. So I would encourage you all, if you can, if you can afford it, to go on to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Trek FM and become a patron. And for as little as $15 a month, you can join Trek FM's patron roundtable, which is wonderful. I mean, this is how I found my way onto the network. And who knows? What could happen to you, right? You, you might find your way. And then if you're kind enough to donate $25 per month or more, uh, you get associate producer credit for the shows of your choice, and that's a big deal. And speaking of that, we would like to say thank you always to our associate producers for this show, for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and Aaron Harvey. Thanks so much for all of your support for both Standard Orbit and for Trek FM through Patreon. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701. Richard, you can find at at RUT8972. And you can find our buddy Aaron Harvey at GeekFilter, all on Twitter. So look them up, follow them, and, uh, and thank you again. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look into the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm please leave us a voice message that we can play here on the show. You can hear your own voice on the podcast. Pretty fun. So feel free to do that. And you can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM or through Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM and the Babel Conference. To find us at the Babel Conference, type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Babel Conference is a great way for you to connect with fellow listeners and the hosts of the network. So as for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman TV show, and we're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. What about you, Ken? So you can find me as well on the Babel Conference, that's where I like to hang out. It's my favorite spot on Facebook, to be honest with you. It's the safest, funnest, uh, most respectful spot to talk Star Trek on the entire interweb. So look for me there and feel free to also look for me on Facebook at any time and feel free to IM me with questions or, or, or if you just want to hook up and be friends. Or you can, uh, you can get information from me via Twitter. Yes, I am on Twitter now at Boston SCPO. That's Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer SCPO. And I look forward to communicating with you in between these shows and especially when they drop. That's when it's a lot of fun. So we'll talk to you soon. So thanks, everyone, again for listening. And join us next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.